following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. If you could turn in your Bibles to uh, Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. And our passage this morning is verses 7 to 18. Colossians 4, 7 to 18. I, uh, I struggle to know what to call this um, message, and I think in the end I settled for lessons from Paul and his friends. Lessons from Paul and his friends, which is about the most uh, ordinary title you could think of, but I think it does capture something of these verses. So, um, in 1964, Muhammad Ali became the heavyweight boxing champion of the world. If you're kind of my generation or a bit older, you might remember Muhammad Ali. He was called Cassius Clay until he became a Muslim and changed his name. So he became the heavyweight champion of the world at just at the age of 22 years old. And he had many qualities, but he wasn't known for his humility. Anyway, one day he was flying somewhere, uh, and the air stewardess was going around checking the different passengers to make sure that they'd uh, buckle their seatbelts. Uh, and he hadn't. He, his seatbelt buckle was unfastened, and she said to him, please could you fasten your seatbelt? Uh, and he looked at her and said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And as quick as a flash, she was very quick, she said, yes, and Superman don't need no plane. <laughs> Which was a good way of putting him back into his place. Alright, this passage at the end of Colossians, um, obviously is written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was, was really the Bible's theologian. Uh, more than anyone else uh, that you find in the whole of the Bible, I would say, and certainly in the New Testament, Paul was given this vital task of explaining the meaning of the life and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ through his letters. So Jesus came, he lived and he died, and he rose again, and we would have known a lot about his life from the Gospels, but Paul was raised up to explain uh, what it all meant. Paul was a man with a brilliant mind. We're told in Acts 22 that he was trained at the feet of Gamaliel, he was a much respected rabbi in Judaism. After, uh, sorry, at his conversion, Paul personally met the risen Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Uh, and later he tells us in the book of Galatians that he learnt the gospel directly from Jesus himself. It wasn't second-hand his gospel. He didn't learn it from perhaps his parents or from a preacher like we might. He learnt it directly from Jesus. And Paul is known as the world's first missionary. Uh, He was gifted to work mighty miracles. He planted churches right across the ancient world. But in spite of Paul being a big man in every way, he wasn't, I don't think he was a big man physically, but he was a big man in in other ways in terms of his personality, uh, he wasn't a lone ranger. Uh, Paul wasn't detached from other people. He He wasn't off doing his own thing. And this passage reminds us that Paul was part of a network of people with whom he shared his life and ministry. And that's the value of these final 11 verses of Colossians. Often, I think they can be an afterthought, or even the headings that Bible translators add, like final greetings, always seem a bit bland, as if they're not very important. But actually, when you think about these final verses, uh, where Paul says goodbye, they're they're, they're pretty significant, as I've discovered over the last week. So over the last few weeks, as we've studied the book of Colossians, we've thought about... Jesus Christ, Uh, Colossians is really the book about who Jesus Christ is. Ephesians is the book about uh, the church of Jesus Christ. But Colossians is about who Jesus Christ is. It's about his supremacy and centrality in all things. And we've considered how Christ is Lord of the creation. He's the Lord of the church. He's the Lord of the cross. And he's the Lord of the Christian. And here in this final section, Paul signs off and he says goodbye. And it's a long goodbye. And it's deeply personal. You learn things about Paul in a kind of personal way, the way he thinks about those he's in relationship with, which are significant and worth thinking about. So we learn about Paul's relationships. We learn about his friends, his companions, and we're going to meet them, or most of them. I'm not sure I've got time to do all of them. So this morning, I want you to think of that you're in a, like an art gallery or a portrait gallery in particular. And we're not looking at one picture in, uh, in particular, but we're looking at several paintings Uh, snapshots of people whose lives intersect with Paul's. And as we go through and look at these different 
uh, portraits of different people. We're going to learn something as we go along. Either something that Paul says or something that a comment that I want to make. So let's begin, number one, with Tychicus. Uh, and uh, I've entitled this, I think, Tychicus, uh, the bond slave of Jesus. Tychicus, the bond slave of Jesus. He's the first um, person we're going to think about. So in verse 7, we, we read this. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a faithful brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So first off, we meet Tychicus. Uh, He's one of Paul's established travelling companions and disciples. Now, Tychicus was from Thessalonica, and he was one of the men who accompanied Paul when he delivered that financial gift that Paul had collected among the Gentile churches to take to the believers in Jerusalem during time of famine. Paul went with Tychicus in those days. And then later on, Paul sent him to Ephesus, uh, where he took Timothy's place as the leader of the church there, very likely. And possibly later on, Paul sent him to Crete. So he was one of the men that Paul trusted. Now, Paul writes this letter to the Colossian church while he's under house arrest in Rome. And he sends Tychicus to deliver, because he's in chains, he sends Tychicus to deliver this letter to the church at Colossae. Uh, as he also did, send, he sent him to, to take the letter to the church in Ephesus. So on this occasion, Tychicus is the mailman, or I would, co- I would call him the postman. There was nothing like Thai post, of course, in this kind of culture, to deliver mail to every house in the Roman Empire. Letters were carried by hand. They were delivered by hand, and Tychicus was the man. He delivered Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, and also uh, the letter to the church at Ephesus. He was a trustworthy man. But we'll note that Tychicus wasn't only the mailman, he wasn't only the postman. There were three things that we learned from Paul's writing here. First of all, he was a beloved brother. He was also a faithful minister, and he was a fellow servant, Paul says. So Tychicus was a beloved brother. Uh, People loved him. Now, I can't really explain what it means for somebody to be loved by other people, except that you know somebody who is like this. You know a Christian believer who is easy to love in the church, or somebody that you know. They are a beloved Christian. So this man was certainly loved by Paul. He was a beloved brother. According to Paul, he was also a faithful minister. So in the New Testament, the word for minister, uh, in this context here, certainly isn't a title. or uh, It's not a status of office, but it's a title of servanthood. Uh, so Tychicus is a... a fa- uh, when it says Tychicus is a faithful minister, it's better translated that he's a faithful servant. He's a servant of the church and he can be trusted to get things done. So several years ago I had a a very good friend in England who was a fellow elder with me in church leadership. Uh, And when I asked him to do something, I knew it was done. I don't think he ever dropped the ball and he was always given administrative things to do. But he never dropped the ball. And I think I used to wonder why he was so regular and and reliable and efficient in his... uh, personal life and I thought it was his personal integrity and it partly was but the longer I got to know him the more more I realised that the reason he was always so reliable was because he understood the value of the gospel he understood the value of the church and he didn't let you down because he knew what mattered in the world and he knew that the church of Jesus Christ mattered and that's why he was always faithful and I think Tychicus was like that so he was beloved he was a faithful servant And the third thing that Paul tells us about Tychicus is that he is a fellow slave. So Paul says he's a fellow servant, but actually a better translation of the word that's used here in the original Greek is that he was a a bondservant, a fellow bondservant. So Paul identifies him in relation to himself, a fellow bondservant. You know, Paul considered himself to be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He happily introduced himself in that way in letter after letter Paul regarded himself as being owned by Jesus Christ Jesus Christ was his master and in Paul's mind Tychicus is another bond servant another bond slave someone like he Paul who laid down his 
personal preferences and his personal ambitions at the feet of Jesus to be directed by Jesus from now on, to take on the agenda of Jesus Christ in his life. So Tychicus had discovered the, the truth of the words of Jesus, who said, if you, seek to lose your, if you seek to save your life for yourself, you will lose it. But if you lay down your life for the sake of Jesus Christ and his plans and, um, and ambitions, uh, then you will find true life. He was a bond slave of Jesus. And I think in the life of Tychicus as the bond slave of Jesus, we find a sort of secret of a contented life. It's one of the ironies of existence, and it's hugely countercultural today, that life is not essentially about what you want to do or what I want to do. Our, our life is not essentially about the building of our kingdom. It's about the, king, the building of another kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the centre of reality, not me. And amazingly, he invites me to participate with him in the building of his kingdom. And Tychicus was a man like that. I remember as a new Christian very vividly being in a church when I was about 18 years old and a little baby was being dedicated. He was called Peter. And the pastor took him in his arms and, and he prayed these words. He said, although today we, we name or we call this little baby Peter, our prayer is that one day he will live his life in the name of another, the name of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm talking about when I mean that Tychicus was a bond servant of Jesus Christ. He lived his life in the name of another. He'd laid down his rights, his ambitions to take on the agenda of Jesus Christ. And there is the secret of a contented life or so that many, that many people do not find. Because what they want to do always gets in the way of what Jesus Christ has for them to do. So Tychicus was the mailman. Uh, he delivered Paul's letter. He was beloved, he was a faithful servant and he was a bond servant of Jesus Christ. That's our first uh, face in the portrait gallery. The second one uh, is Onesimus, who is a new convert. Look in verse 9. And with him is Onesimus, and with him Onesimus, with Tychicus is Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They, that's both of them, will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So it seems that Tychicus is travelling with, on, uh, with Onesimus. Now, if you know your Bibles, your New Testament, you will know that Paul wrote a letter to a brother called Philemon. Uh, and uh, Philemon lived in Colossae, and one of his slaves was a man called Onesimus. And Philemon was a believer. And Onesimus, in the early days anyway, when he was working for Philemon, was not a believer. And one day Onesimus ran away, very likely taking some money that wasn't his with him from Philemon. Anyway, eventually Onesimus ended up in Rome in the providence of God. I suspect he ended up meeting the Apostle Paul, who was under house arrest at this time. And seemingly, as a result of their encounter, Onesimus became a Christian. He was born again. He was converted by the force of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. And Onesimus took to caring for Paul during his imprisonment. And in time, Paul seems to have developed a, a deep affection for Onesimus. He calls him his son in the Lord, and he um, remarks in his letter to Philemon that he wrote how profitable Onesimus had become to him. But now Paul is sending him back to his master Philemon in Colossae. Colossae. Uh, with another letter, which is the letter to, the, to Philemon, uh, when he requests Philemon to take Onesimus back, uh, not this time as a slave, but as a brother. And Paul also offers to pay for any financial uh, loss that Philemon has incurred because of the departure of Onesimus. Now this morning I'm not going to get into any kind of uh, debate about whether Paul was right to send a slave back to his master. Lots of ink has been spilt over, uh, over that over many, many years. Uh, but my point this morning is that Onesimus is an example of a man whose life was changed by the gospel. You know, the gospel is not some idea that we admire. It shouldn't be anyway. I think when I went to seminary and studied scripture, I used to worry that we just admired the gospel too much and needed to get over the wall of the seminary and talk to real people out in the streets. But the gospel is not something that we admire. 
only it is the power of God for salvation. And Onesimus is valuable here for many reasons, but one of them is that Onesimus is an example of how uh, the gospel changes lives. And we need to remember that, even if we're not seeing many converts in our ministry. That we need to be faithful and keep ministering uh, the gospel to men and women that we meet who don't know Jesus Christ, believing that the gospel changes lives and there will come a time when there is a harvest for the gospel. So Onesimus is Tychicus's travelling companion. And I imagine that uh, Onesimus is travelling back to Philemon full of trepidation because uh, in the Roman Empire it was legal and common for runaway slaves to be executed. So Tychicus and Onesimus are delivering a letter from Paul in Rome to the church in Colossae. And likely they never knew the value of what they were doing. The value of that precious letter that they were taking. That one day, that we'd be studying this letter uh, uh, with many other people, I imagine, around the world. Uh, But they they never, I guess that they never knew that that letter that they were carrying would one day uh, be placed alongside the Old Testament, the five books of Moses, the book of Isaiah, and Amos, and the Psalms. Eventually, uh, the, the letter to the church at uh, Colossi would be translated into hundreds of languages and hundreds if not thousands of commentaries would be written about this letter they had no idea about that but they were faithful in doing what they had to do which was deliver this letter to the church then look if you look in verse 7 if you've got this in front of you uh, he says Tychicus will tell you all about my activities and then in verse 9 he says they that's Onesimus and, um, and Tychicus will tell you everything that has taken place here So it's interesting to think that Paul is commending the importance of these men explaining what's been happening in Paul's life. And it's a good lesson for us because the exchanging of information is important for Christians. It's good that we know what's happening in other people's lives and they know what's happening in our life. You see, as believers we should share our joys and our struggles because there is encouragement from knowing What's going on in other people's lives? When we know that other people are struggling, we realise that we're not the only ones. It's also good to share people's joys. It's important to know that we're not alone, that we're part of a great family of God's people worldwide. So Christians telling each other about their lives does good. It, it has a, a strengthening effect. And of course that's why some of us uh, write newsletters home. Uh, to our churches and supporters back in our um, home countries. It may not be our favourite task. Um, Writing your monthly newsletter, maybe you groan every time you have to write your newsletter, but it's an important task. You see, it makes prayer possible. Prayer thrives when you have information. So we have Tychicus and we have Onesimus, Paul's messengers. So we've already met two characters from the early church. And then, we come to three Jews and three Gentiles. Three Jews and three Gentiles in verses 10 to 14. Let's read them. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justus, These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and be fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved Physician greets you, as does Demas. So in these verses we have six men. They're all Christians, but three of them are from a Jewish background and three are from a Gentile background. And seemingly they are the best of friends. They are brothers. They're united in ministry. Now that may not surprise you that they are brothers and that they are united together in ministry, but it probably should do, because in the ancient world uh, there was a There was what Paul called in Ephesians a great wall of separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. So the Jews called the Gentiles the great unwashed of the world. 
uh, and mostly referred to them as dogs. Um, they were, for many Jews, the Gentiles were only created for the sole purpose of providing fuel for the fires of hell. And from the Gentiles' point of view, I'm getting a lot of feedback here. I don't know if that can be reduced. Um, uh, an awful lot of feedback. Thank you. Uh, so, but from the point of view of the the Gentiles, they thought of the Jews in equally negative ways. Uh, many times, uh, I think the Gentiles thought of the Jews as exclusive and fussy and a kind of generally fanatical religious maniacs. But when people came to Christ, whether they were Jews or Gentiles, there was reconciliation between the two. The great wall of separation was broken down. You see, the gospel doesn't only break down the barrier between us, human beings, and God. It breaks down the barrier between men and men and women and women. And when Christ is preached, we should expect there to be reconciliation between people who are not naturally friends. And this is a good lesson for us today, isn't it? If you come from a, cu- a country maybe where there's division between people, maybe there are culture wars, or there are people with huge di- political differences, different backgrounds, it's a good reminder that the gospel should unite us together with a bigger cause than much lesser causes that we often fight for. So when the gospel is preached, we should expect there should be reconciliation between what we might call rednecks and liberals in America. They should be reconciled together for a bigger cause. Or Indians and Pakistanis in the Kashmir. When the gospel is preached, you'd expect reconciliation. So the most important thing in the world isn't who owns that territory, Pakistan or India. Or maybe Israelis and Palestinians in the Middle East. In fact, it's one of the remarkable testimonies of the gospel is that you have churches on the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip made up um, of, um, of, of Jews uh, and Palestinians together who are reconciled in Jesus Christ. So the gospel reconciles people together. There's a, a big Christian convention every year in, um, in England, in the, in the Lake District, at a place called Keswick, the Keswick Convention. And, and people come from all over the world. And at the front there is a great banner, which has been there, not, not the same banner, but there's been that banner uh, for at least a hundred years, and it says, All one in Christ Jesus. Uh, and here we meet three Jews and three Gentiles. They're all part of Paul's group, his band of men. So here's the first one, Aristarchus. And I've called him Paul's fellow prisoner, Aristarchus. So Aristarchus is our first um, a man of Jewish, with a Jewish background. Um, Paul calls them men of the circumcision. And he sends greetings. So who was Aristarchus? Well, he was... Um, with Paul at this time under, when Paul was under house arrest, very likely he deliberately came and um, voluntarily came to be with Paul in his imprisonment to comfort and strengthen him during that time of imprisonment. When I think of Aristarchus, I think of a very brave man. He was one of those men, you know, when Paul was in Ephesus and he was, uh, he was declaring that Jesus Christ was Lord of the universe and the... Uh, the local people got offended because their business was at their idolatry, their business idolatry was at stake, uh, and they, the, the crowd, the mob, they wanted to get hold of Paul and rip him apart. And Aristarchus was there with him, and Aristarchus and Gaius uh, were the men that the, the mob got hold of. They didn't get hold of Paul, they got hold of Aristarchus and Gaius. And um, they survived, but I would imagine that Aristarchus was a man who had scars on his body from that day. Uh, like so many in the first century, he suffered for his Lord. Uh, and here we find him at Paul's side again during his imprisonment. You know, I, when I read through the New Testament, you sense this sense of brotherliness and camaraderie in the gospel among these men. Aristarchus was with Paul. They were brothers together in the work of the ministry. And then secondly, we come to John Mark. Am I sort of subheading is serving again. You will know that Paul undertook three missionary journeys. On the first one he took Barnabas with him and also John Mark. But at some point Mark abandoned the, the two other two men, Barnabas and Paul, and went back to Jerusalem. And when Paul came to plan his second missionary journey, he refused to take John Mark along with him. It seemed that Paul no longer had confidence in Mark. 
um, no longer trusted him. But Barnabas, who we know from this text, was John Mark's cousin, wanted to take him along. And eventually there was this very strong disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And it was so intense um, that it ended with Paul not taking either of the men. And he he chose Silas and went off in his own journey. And Barnabas and John Mark went on their own journey. Now I don't know who was right and wrong. We don't have enough information. We have no idea really why John Mark uh, left them in the first place. But the point is that seemingly Paul had lost confidence in John Mark. But here we are and it's 14 years later. And Paul tells the church in Colossae that if Mark comes, then welcome him as a minister of the gospel. So doubtless, Paul once thought that John Mark was immature and untrustworthy, but not anymore it seems. He's now a trusted man. He's recommended by the man who once doubted him. And the lesson is that we have to allow young Christians to grow up and not write them off because of immaturity or mistakes that they make in their early years. We have to make room for people to grow. And Paul did that. He, he made room for John Mark to grow up. So Aristarchus and John Mark are Jews. Numbers 1 and 2. And then we come to our third. Who is Jesus called Justice. Not much to say about this man except to say this, that Jesus, or the, the Hebrew version for Jesus, which is Joshua... Uh, was a common name in the first century amongst Jewish men. Um, uh, Jesus really means Yahweh saves or it means Yahweh delivers. Uh, And seemingly this Jesus uh, insisted on using an additional name, a non-Jewish name, which was Justus, just out of respect for his Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all we know about him. He's called Jesus, known as Justus, or called Justus. So we have Aristarchus. We have John Mark and we have Jesus called Justice. They're part of this kind of band of men that Paul is with. And Paul writes of them, These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. What you sense is that Paul valued these men. They refreshed him. Uh, They encouraged him. Even the great apostle Paul needed support and fellowship. So I have several male friends who I ride the raft of life with. And I've done so since my early 20s, really, these same men. They've been with me all the way through my previous decades. And they're men who understand me, uh, and I understand them. They're they're with me in the gospel. Uh, We trust each other. We trust each other theologically. Uh, we agree on what really matters in life. We have the same worldview. We, we keep each other's confidences. We encourage each other through difficulties. Uh, and we also hold each other to account. And here's the thing. I don't know what I'd have done. Or I don't know how I'd have got through life this far without their support and their friendship. And the point is that, that fellow believers in the gospel, friends in the gospel, they really matter. I think we don't spend enough time thinking about this. Um, I have a friend in England and he's written a book not a friend of somebody I know in England he's written a book on friendship and, and you think well, how could you write a whole book on friendship but actually friendship is a very very important thing isn't it we, we can very easily think friendship's important but we don't invest any time into friendships and there's a lesson for many of us I think that if you want to have friends and I think most people want to have friends if you, if you want to have friends you've got to be a friend you've got to learn to be a friend if you want to have friendships friendships have to be worked out they don't just fall out of the sky into our laps but they're essential and I think they're increasingly essential you know uh, for the last 250 years anyway western Christianity um, in particular has, has enjoyed an unusual holiday from persecution western Christianity has for the last 250 years but I strongly suspect at that time when we're not going to face real hardships and difficulties is is coming to an end. Uh, And the sad truth is that when persecution comes to Western Christians in the Western world, or certainly times of great difficulty, then many people may fall away from the faith and side with the world. And in those times that I think are coming ahead, then we will need friends to stand with us more than ever. So there's a great lesson from Paul really about the importance of friendships when we see 
how he thinks about these men. And then we come to the, we've done three Gentiles, we come to, sorry, uh, we've done three Jews, we come to three Gentiles that Paul is with, or men who are on Paul's mind. And here's the first, Epaphras. And I've called him man of prayer, a man of prayer. Paul writes, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. Um, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those at Lady Asia and, Hierop- and Hierapolis. So as Paul writes, or more likely he dictates this letter, it's as if something strikes him as an essential characteristic of each of the people that he's uh, got in mind. And when it comes to Epaphras, the thing that strikes him, that comes to mind, is his prayer life. He writes, he struggles and works hard, he labours. Prayer is like that, it's work. And his prayer is aimed at believers, at Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis, which are just down the road from Colossae. And he prays that they may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So Epaphras, to me, is an example of a praying man. You know, prayer is in some ways a mystery. But it's also a testimony to incredible human significance. Prayer is a testimony to incredible human significance. You see, it seems that the witness of the Bible on prayer is that God takes our prayer so seriously that our prayers can shape the lives and destinies of events and, li- and, and individual lives and nations. You know, you and I must never underestimate the impact of our prayers on other people. Prayer is a testimony to incredible human significance. But also, prayer has this other benefit to ourselves, which I don't think we think enough about. You know, carving out time to pray regularly is one of the secrets of the Christian life. It's one of the secrets of growing up. Because, you see, prayer is the place of vision. It's, it's in the secret place of prayer that we begin to see things differently. We begin to see things from God's perspective. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens incrementally as we devote time to pray. We spend time in God's presence. We begin to see things from a completely different perspective. It's almost as if it's on our knees more than anywhere else that our worldview is reconfigured. And we begin to see things from the perspective of eternity. Uh, It's on our knees before the throne of grace in worship and intercession intercession, that there there comes to us a growing realisation of what really matters in the world and what doesn't matter. And, you know, we need to sort those kind of things out, don't we? Because there's an awful lot of things in life that we give our time and money and attention to that don't really matter. And it's in prayer that we begin to learn what really does matter. It's as if, in prayer, we feel the weight of eternal things. And we also sense the shallowness and the brevity of this present age. You know, if you spend a lot of time in this culture, uh, marinating in this culture, it will destroy all of your spiritual insight and discernment. A friend said that to me years ago. He said, if you watch television, this was before there was the internet, he said, if you watch television uh, for three hours a day, within ten years you'll have no spiritual discernment left. And that was a really good lesson, because there's something about the, the worldview of the age that undoes all of your spiritual discernment. But you see, the way, the, the, the way to counteract that is to spend time in the presence of God, in prayer, and our worldview begins to be configured and reconfigured to think about eternal things. So prayer changes people and nations and we should spend time in prayer praying for uh, others as um, we find here uh, with um, Epaphras. But also prayer changes us and our perspective. So for Paul, as he thinks about Epaphras, he, he is defined by his prayer life. He's committed to the spiritual welfare of other people. And that's his ministry. And Paul says he greets you. He greets you. And then we come to our next Gentile who is Luke and I've called him the careful historian look in verse 14 Luke the beloved physician greets you as does Demas we'll come to Demas in a minute so here in this text we discover that Luke is a doctor he's a physician Uh, one commentator I read 
said that Luke was probably a ship's doctor. Why does he think that? Well, in Acts 27, when Paul is shipwrecked with Luke, I think Luke is with him, uh, he describes that voyage and the eventual shipwreck in such detail that he knew all lots of things about ships and shipping. And somebody speculates that he was a ship's doctor. It's a possibility. Uh, but here, the thing that I want you to see is that Luke was a, was a historian who wrote about a third of the New Testament. Luke wrote about a third of the New Testament. He wrote Luke and Acts. And the thing is, how much, would we owe, how much do we owe to Luke? How much would we miss without his writings? We'd miss a huge amount of our understanding of the Christian gospel. So this is why Luke was important. Because as this letter was being written, what, 62 AD? At this moment in history, they were living at the, at the far side of momentous events in history. Um, when Paul's writing his letter, events had happened that had shaken the whole nation of Israel and the, and the whole system of Judaism. Uh, and in time, they came to shake the whole Roman world. Because this man, Jesus Christ, who was mighty in word and deed, was crucified and he rose from the dead. Now, it doesn't happen every day of the week, does it? The people rise from the dead. I was watching um, N.T. Wright, or Tom Wright, recently. He's written probably the most definitive account of the resurrection of Jesus that's ever been written. Uh, and I, I was watching him on a video, and he's asked, he said, somebody said to him, um, he said, uh, how can people believe in the resurrection today when we know today that dead men don't rise from the dead? That was their question. And Tom Wright said something really interesting. He said, well, back in the time of Jesus... They also knew that people didn't rise from the dead. I thought that was a really, really good remark. And you see, these men had witnessed the resurrection from the dead and it blew their dis- the, the disciples and the, the early believers as they became, it blew their world apart. They realised that the whole of history had to be the whole of so reality and the way they thought about the world had to be rethought in the light of this event of the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it meant that Jesus' life had to be explained to the world accurately. The gospel writers, they couldn't afford to get a single word wrong or a single event wrong. They had a duty to the whole world and to every single generation to come, including us, to be accurate reporters of what had happened in the life of Jesus. And Luke was one of those men. He was a Greek. He was a man of order and logic. He travelled from eyewitness to eyewitness. He wasn't an eyewitness, but he travelled from eyewitness to eyewitness and he faithfully investigated and documented the life of Jesus Christ. Um, and that's, of course, how he opens his gospel according to Luke to you. He says, we, we did this properly. We investigated all that's gone on to give you a proper account of what happened. And they, then later on he did the same thing with the book of the, with the Acts of the Apostles so that we understand the events of Pentecost and the early days of the church. So we owe Luke a great debt. He's beloved to Paul and he's beloved to us as well. So Luke is our second Gentile. And here's our third. This is Demas. I'm going to finish on Demas and say a bit about him. Demas is a warning to all of us. It's kind of all been encouragement so far, but Demas is a warning to all of us. I was thinking about this, that with the exception of Judas Iscariot, Demas is maybe the saddest character in the whole of the New Testament. So Luke is with Demas, um, who also greets those who get Paul's letters. Now, the letter to the Colossians is Paul's fourth letter, most likely, his fourth letter that we possess anyway. But by the time that Paul gets to his last letter, which is 2 Timothy, which is about six years later, Paul writes these words. He says, Demas has forsaken us, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Demas has forsaken me, us, and uh, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. So seemingly, Demas left Paul, and left the faith, and left the church, and he went back to the world. In the, you know, in the New Testament, the, the world is really, 
when, when it talks about the world, especially in John's writings, it's really a term, a, a word for humanity living in, its fall, living in its fallen state without God, as if that's normal. And Demas had gone back to the world. Demas loved this present world, Paul wrote six years later. Now, Paul doubtless loved the world as God's creation. We must never con- confuse the world in its fallen state with the world as God's creation. Paul loved God's creation. But if anybody wasn't living for this present world, it was Paul. He saw through the world. He saw its shallowness. He saw its transitoriness, its brevity, in a way that nobody else did. He knew that the world was fake and temporary. His mind was on eternal things. And in time, Demas forsook him, Paul, and the faith for the world, seemingly. And I think Demas, you know, is a warning to all of us. Um, And especially I think Demas is a warning to young people today. And I want to explain why. So I'm particularly thinking about people who are millennials. You're a millennial, millennial if you're born between 1980 and 1995. Or Generation Z, 1996 to 2005, 2008 maybe. You know, one um, friend of mine said to me 20 years ago, he said, we are witnessing a, her- a hemorrhage of young people from the church that can only be likened to a burst artery. And it's probably worse today than it was 20 years ago. So if you're not a native English speaker, what that means is that uh, lots of children of Christian families are abandoning the faith in greater numbers than ever before. Maybe, uh, well, certainly for at least 150 years, lots of children of Christian families are leaving the faith in the Western world. And I suspect not only in the Western world, but probably in Thailand and beyond. So let me just speak to that for a moment, that whole... Um, this whole kind of movement of young people moving away from the, the, the faith of their childhood and their, and their parents. You know, the data shows that less than half of those who arrive at college um, as believers leave with their faith intact. It's probably less than half, even Christian colleges. So how do we explain this? Why is this this great apostasy from the Christian faith? Well, lots of things that we could say, but I think it's true to say that during the last 300 years or so, a handful of philosophers or thinkers, maybe I was just trying to count them this morning, about 15 philosophers and thinkers have slowly changed the way that vast numbers of people think about the Western world, about the world in general. I'm thinking about philosophers like Rousseau and Charles Darwin and Karl Marx and uh, Nietzsche and Sigmund Freud and in more recent years people like Herbert Marcuse and Michel Foucault. Now these men are all dead Um, and many people know nothing about them but their ideas are more alive than ever. And in our day their collective thinking has kind of enchanted the world, bewitched the world especially an elite who've got huge influence. So teachers in schools, university professors, governments, the media, and huge tech companies like Apple and Google and Amazon uh, promote the ideas of these dead people, these dead philosophers. You know, ideas are the most powerful things in the world. They begin in books and in libraries and then eventually they walk and they take hold of people's minds. So these ideas of many of these dead philosophers increasingly rule the world and they shape the modern consciousness, especially among young people. And what we're living through really, I would say, is a revolution. We're living through a revolution which is an attempt to destroy old foundations and build a new kind of society. And what do we call it? Well, we call it a cultural revolution. Uh, We call it cultural Marxism. We might call it wokeism. We might call it progressivism. We might call it the social justice movement. We might call it identity politics. You can take your pick. But the agenda is to establish a kind of creed, a worldview, where there is no longer any truth, there's only power. The agenda is to destroy Christian marriage, to destroy the family, and to make every opinion and every lifestyle choice to be equally valid, equally good. In fact, the only thing that you can do that's wrong is to label any lifestyle choice or any opinion or any person's way of thinking is wrong that's evil 
So we're living through this era when everything is being reconfigured. Right and wrong, the nature of law and government and meaning and purpose, what it means to be a human being, what it means to be male, what it means to be female, the distinction between human beings and animals, all these things are being lost. Everything is fluid today. We're living in the midst of a of this cultural revolution and I think it may prove to be more significant in human history than all the revolutions that have gone before the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution the sexual revolution I think it might prove to be more significant than all of those and that's saying something I'm a history teacher but here's the thing to remember this mindset this new way of moulding people's thinking this cultural revolution it doesn't come with warning labels it doesn't say be careful. It doesn't, give, it doesn't say be, be thoughtful before accepting this. It doesn't say look at the sources of these ideas. It doesn't say look at the destination of where these ideas will take you. It's exactly the opposite. You see, this new worldview comes, and it's not really new, it's just that it's, it's newly packaged uh, and it's hugely powerful and influential. Uh, it comes with a kind of shiny wrapping. It's surrounded by words like tolerance and inclusion and social justice and equality and progress and rights and fighting oppression. So this agenda insists that we found, we discovered in our generation, a path to a better world. And all opponents to this view have to be faced down and silenced. They have to be cancelled. And here's the irony, opponents of this view have to be, have never to be tolerated. And you see, Christianity and any attempt to conserve anything from the past is now seen as the new enemy. And this is my point this morning, really. That, And I think this is not too extreme. I think it's true to say that never in the history of the world before has Satan found a better recipe for destroying the faith of children raised in Christian homes. Or a better means of transmitting it, which is technology. And for this reason, buying into this agenda is helping to drive a whole generation to do what Demas did and to depart from the faith. And this is my advice to you if you're going to college sometime in the future or when you just land in the secular west or even when you log on to social media. Be very careful what you're buying into. You, you need to think, we need to think very long and hard before we dismiss the Christian faith. We have to make sure that what, uh, what it is that we're giving up before we do that. We have to be careful that we don't sell our birthright too cheaply, our heritage. You see, when you have doubts about the Christian faith, and you will have doubts, don't ignore them. Go deeper. Read the Gospels. Think deeply about who Jesus Christ is. Can we trust the Gospels? Read the best defences of the Christian faith. Read C.S. Lewis. Read John Stott's Basic Christianity, profound book about Jesus. Read Tim Keller's Reason for God. Read books like The Cross and the Switchblade. These incredible accounts, biographies of people who've seen God at work in powerful ways to change lives. And of course, above all, seek God that he will reveal himself to you and uh, reveal, his, um, uh, reveal himself to you and he will do that. And you see, uh, against the background of this huge tsunami of ideas that are trying to grab the, our minds and take us in a different direction it might just be that we discover that and I discovered this that my childhood faith was not some naive tale for simple people it wasn't just some worldview to oppress women and black people and gay people as I was told at university but actually the Christian faith really is liberating and it is the truth about the universe you see in the end whatever shade of secularism or atheism that you embrace, and this is just really a shade of secularism and atheism, and whatever ever shade of it that you, you embrace, in the end, all that you are left with is an accidental universe and an accidental you, and your destiny is oblivion, nothingness, and that's not very attractive in my book. You see, here's the thing, and we need to say this to people, and I've met so many people over the years who are on the verge or leaving the Christian faith. You know, abandoning the Christian faith doesn't mean that your questions go away. All that happens is really that you have more problems explaining the world than you had before. So the thing is, what I'm trying to say in the light of Demas, who left the faith, is be careful 
about the woke progressive agenda. Many young people are joining a movement that they have no idea about really and have no idea about the dark place it is taking the human race. Now, I don't have time to talk about this, I need to stop, but for goodness sake, don't go the other way and become some ranting conservative who hates the progressive crowd. That's another danger that many Christians fall into. They kind of just hate the opposition. Um, I'll just read you the words of uh, a man. So, in the 1950s and 60s, there was a man called Francis Schaeffer, who was an American pastor and evangelist. And he had great success in winning hippies, the hippie movement, to Jesus in those years. And this is what somebody said about Schaeffer, uh, Francis Schaeffer. He said, Schaeffer was the evangelical conscience at the end of the 20th century. He wept over a world that many of his peers dismissed as not worth saving. Schaefer, who died in 1984, understood the, ang- the anguished cry of a humanity trapped in a prison of its own making. That was the world in the 60s, according to Schaefer. And then he writes, Schaefer was the closest thing to a man of sorrows I have ever met. Too many of us are, are too busy bashing feminists, bas- bashing homosexuals, bashing secular humanists, uh, and political liberals to consider why they believe what they believe. And then listen to this. It's difficult to sympathise with people you see as threats to your children and your neighbourhood. It's hard to weep over those whom you've declared to be your enemies. But Schaefer was the first Christian leader who taught me to weep over the world instead of criticising it. Can you see Schaefer went and he loved people who were radically different to him? So that's my caveat. Understand progressivism and the woke movement and be careful. Teach your children about it, but don't become some ranting conservative that goes the other way and hates people you see as a threat to yourself and your family. So Demas is the third gentile. I need to stop. So here, Demas is working with Paul. He's working for an eternal kingdom and six years later, he leaves for the world, for a kingdom that is passing away. And Demas is a warning to all of us. So I don't have time to talk to you about Nympha uh, and the church that met in her house. That's also here. Uh, And Paul finishes this uh, passage, this letter, by saying, Remember me in my chains. And that's a sermon in itself. So here we have Paul among his friends. This is Paul's long goodbye. He reminds us that Christian ministry is a collective responsibility. And he reminds us that friends and fellow workers, they matter. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.